0: Proctor and conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th through the 30th. The Unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang and Electric Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. The factory includes a tutorials day on March 25th and training on the 20th through the 22nd and 27th through the 30th of March. To keep updated with information, visit www.erlang.factory.com slash sfbay2017. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference will be taking place April 2nd through the 5th of 2017 in New York. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is the professional training event that's not just for software architects, but for any engineer, programmer, developer, or team leader who does part of an architect's job. You'll get coverage of the most important topics of the day from highly respected experts, leading sessions, hands-on tutorials, and in-depth professional training. If your job involves architecting and defining systems, evaluating tools and technologies, leading teams or mentoring others, and collaborating with system stakeholders, you'll want to be there. Save 20% with discount code USRG. For more information, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50017. Tickets for FlatMap Oslo are available now. FlatMap Oslo is a functional programming conference with a focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway. Please go to twenty seventeen no to learn more. Announcements and speakers are being done on Twitter at, at @flatmap. Also, ElixirConf EU will be taking place on May 4th and 5th, with tutorials on May 3rd. ElixirConf EU is a community conference created to promote education, networking, and collaboration within the Erlang, Elixir, and Ruby communities. Early bird tickets are available until March 18th. For more information, visit www.elixirconf.eu. OSCON will be taking place May 8th through 11th in Austin, Texas. The O'Reilly Open Source Convention combines the experience of the open source community with the ideas and strategies for using open source tools and technologies, and gives you exposure to the full stack and all possible configurations. There's no event quite like OSCON, the best place on earth to sharpen your skills and discover new techniques, making you better at what you do and igniting your love of all things code. Registration is now open. Save 20% on most passes with the code USRG. For more information and to register, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 50016. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zablicki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online as well. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are still available. For more information and to register, visit elmeurope.org. EuroClosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. EuroClosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what is happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. The CFP will open Monday, March 13th, and closes Friday, April 21st. And the registration will open March 21st. Visit org for more information and to keep updated. BusConf is a non-profit open space conference about functional programming, taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming-related topics in any language. Ticket registration is already open, and you can find out more at www.bus-conf.org. And if you know of any other conference around functional programming, Email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to help announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week, with us, we have Albert Chang. Albert, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. My name's Albert Chang. I'm currently a software engineer at Box, where I'm working on some Scala infrastructure stuff. In my free time, I generally help maintain a couple open source Scala projects, try to help out a little bit of the community, and otherwise spend my time reading books, papers, stuff like that.
0: And I'd seen you as a follower of the podcast and sharer, and then you also recommended Jared Rush and got him on. And I figured it was time to just get you on to talk about some of the stuff you've been doing, because I know you've gone to a couple of conferences and talked about Scala and what excites you about Scala. So let's start with how you got back into software and what that first exposure was like.
1: So I started out around middle school-ish or middle high school-ish when my my dad tried to get me to learn some basic programming and that didn't really take off. So I guess I really started getting into software around college when I began learning Python and C++. And at the time, I was also working in a research lab where I did large-scale graph analysis. So where we're dealing with graphs that maybe several millions of nodes are trying to do, say, social network analysis on top of that. And at the time, I was trying to build a distributed graph processing library and the two languages that i knew were python and c plus plus and i sort of learned the hard way that python wasn't quite fast enough for the kind of workloads that i was going to be doing and c it was a mix of both i didn't have a strong grasp on c plus especially to do something like distributed computing in it and also because i felt the language was too low level for the kinds of work that i was going to be doing right for for graph analysis stuff i will typically say just partition the nodes across this cluster, and then for each node, I want to do this, and then I want you to aggregate it. And in C++, I felt like there was a lot of syntactic noise, more so than I wanted. And so at the time, my friend Jared Resch, who you had a few weeks earlier, who was my classmate at UC Santa Barbara, which was just happening, was also learning Scala. And he told me about Scala. He told me about ACA, which is sort of erlang style actor system that Scala has, and about futures and the usual functional concurrency concepts, and told me that would be something that I might be interested in. It's compiled, so and it would be faster than, say, Python, but it wasn't as low-level as C++ where we you're sort of managing your own memory. So I decided to check it out. From there, I started hearing things about functional programming, about libraries like Scala Z, and from there, I sort of just went down deep into the rabbit hole and ended where I am today.
0: So if you had the first attempt of exposure at BASIC in the middle school, high school range from your dad trying to get you to expose this, was this something that... You grew up around software, so you're at least tangentially familiar with it, or was this what prompted, hey, take a look at BASIC and try and do it even though it didn't click? That got you that first hint of what it means to do software?
1: So my dad is a software engineer. He actually has a physics degree, but he eventually got into software engineering after he graduated. But I think most of my childhood exposure to what he did was mostly around It was more around like IT stuff, building computers from different parts and helping him fix computers, but I didn't really know anything about software at the time. So I think him trying to introduce me to BASIC was his way of saying, well, there's this whole world beyond building computers, so you should check it out. But I think at the time, just either maybe it was BASIC to language or just I wanted to play video games instead or something like that. It didn't really click with me. It wasn't really interesting to me at the time. So when I ended up in the CS program at UC Santa Barbara, I decided to give it another shot and it turns out. Again, maybe Python was just the better language for me to start out with, or maybe it was I was just more ready mentally at the time for programming.
0: And I'm kind of wondering just because of some of those ideas of exposure around programming, if those crept in, even if you weren't ready for it at that point, by the time you rolled around and said, I'm going to do this, if it was one of those things that, okay, I know that there's this whole thing out there, even though it's ambiguous. Because I've got family members or something that have been exposed to this. So I know it's viable in some sense.
1: Yeah, so I knew there was something programming-esque. I definitely didn't know about, there were like whole worlds of like HCI and like backend systems, distributed systems, databases, things like that. Beyond basic, my dad did try to get me into some HTML and CSS, which eventually led into a tiny bit of PHP maybe. And I think I did. For one of my school projects, write like a little small website, though it was probably through a tool, like through a UI tool as opposed to coding. There was maybe like minor bits of coding, but at the time my my knowledge of what the software world was like was not as strong as say I've seen other people at a similar age have.
0: Okay, and some people get it in the high school or middle school courses where they're first exposed to some of this stuff, and it's just how much does it click at that point and how much is it that you need to set that foundation and then have something click. And so you get in and you start with some Python and some C++. You mentioned C++ was low level. Is that it was the C++ you were seeing was low level? And I'm asking because I know in recent years, C++ has come along and started being relatively high level if you can take advantage of it while still going low level. But it is still more verbose and more detail oriented that you might have to do if you're doing the distributed system where you can't just say do this do this you have to get down and manage how that all works but you're still doing it at a higher level than the old c++ that was more in line with c
1: yeah for sure so i know like sort of modern c++ really likes to advertise these ideas like smart pointers and where you don't you sort of don't do manual memory management it sort of does it behind the scenes for you on like destruction and on Zing function calls and things like that. I guess I was sort of biased at the time when I was making this transition because my C++ exposure thus far had been in say my data structures and algorithms class where it was very the way we were taught data structure and algorithms was sort of like okay this is a linked list you need to allocate this node and then you need to probe certain fields inside it and then to Prepend to the linked list. You need to allocate another node and then set the tail pointer. So it was very low level. I guess they didn't want to teach us about smart pointers just yet, considering this was sort of like a beginner's class. So we were doing very low level manual memory allocation stuff. And so at the time, I probably thought, well, this is what C++ is. It's a lot of manual memory management. And when I have research to do and I have actual problems I want to solve, I don't want to really spend all my time debugging seg faults or carefully managing memory. I, was, I sort of wanted to say. This is what I want to do for this subset of nodes and then just go and do the thing for me.
0: And part of that tease out is I know that even before C plus plus fourteen, I want to say, or maybe even C plus plus eleven, that some of these concepts might have been shown off in C and C++ going back a number of years of some of the functional programming styles where if you had a pointer, a pointer can be a pointer to anything, even a function. So you would kind of pass that around. And that becomes advanced C even, but I wasn't sure how much of that kind of set the stage of some of those ideas and what that transition was looking like. If you're looking at the C++ and then you get introduced to Scala where it's more, go create some code. This is an actor, spawn it up and kind of let it do its thing. And you can just say, go create a bunch of these actors, split them up into this work, and then we'll get those results back and have another actor that aggregates it. So what was that kind of foundation of the Python and the C++ looking like and how were you using those? And that influenced when Jared said, hey, here's the Scala thing, take a look at it.
1: So Scala was effectively my first exposure to functional programming. And I guess pretty much where I learned 90, 95% of what I know today about functional programming. At the time, I didn't really do much functional programming in Python or C++. I might have done like a little bit in Python using, uh, they have like some map and filter and some some lambdas that are fairly limited, but they're there. But at the time, I was freely mutating variables and just side-effecting whenever I felt like it. So I think the big thing that Jared sold me on for Scala was ACA, because at the time when I was writing some... when I was working with the C++ framework for, for distributed processing, it was... there was a lot of low-level stuff that I was exposed to, so maybe it was the framework, or maybe it was just... I was digging too deep, and I wasn't sure what I was doing, but there were a lot of, like, mentions of, like, threads and locks... A lot of like the primitive concurrency mechanisms. And when Jared was like, well, you we can have this actor thing, which you can sort of treat as like a high level node that just sends and receives messages. And you don't have to sort of worry about cross thread mutable state. I was like, okay, I'll give that a shot. So it was
0: the Aka thing that sold you. And it wasn't necessarily the Scala syntax or the Scala ways of doing things where you had seen things like Python with a little bit of lambdas or blocks or whatever Python calls it with a map and reduce and filter basics. And seeing that ramped up and taken advantage of, and Scala, but it was mainly about the actor model and creating these nodes that you can then partition this work off to.
1: Yeah, so it was definitely akka that that sold me on Scala. At the time, I wasn't. He didn't really try to sell me on like, oh, Scala has like pattern matching, or has immutable variables, or it has these libraries like ScalaZ, which provides you with like monad and applicative and stuff like that. At the time, I was mostly convinced because of akka. And if you if you ask him today, he'll, he'll tell you that back then, whenever he tried to mention any sort of functional programming related thing to me, I would sort of make fun of him and poke jokes about like not being able to do anything real. Uh, and the, the usual jokes we hear about functional programming. But yeah, at the time, it was mostly Akka. I looked around online, people seemed to like Akka a lot. And it seemed like a pretty good model, especially for the kind of distributed programming that I wanted to do.
0: Yeah. And so if I'm understanding right, this is Scala as a better Java just so you can take advantage of akka. What transitioned you into the functional programming side and going deeper into the functional programming side of Scala and saying, I might even lean more towards these Scala Zs or cats or things that get me the monads and applicatives versus just still having akka but having a better Java?
1: Yeah, so when I was learning Scala and reading these Scala books to sort of get better at using Scala and using akka. I heard a lot of people talk about Scala Z both in negative and positive contexts. So I often heard things like, "Oh, it's an interesting academic library, but it's, it's a cute library to play with. You're not going to be able to do any actual work with it. Scala isn't Haskell, so any attempt to use like Monad or like a state Monad or or Kleisly is going to fail in Scala." And on the other side, for the people who I knew were very deep in Scala Z or or participated actively with it, they had nothing but extremely positive things to say about it. And coincidentally, about a year or two after I picked up Scala, my friend Adam, who worked at Box, who actually got me this job. So I'm basically at Box because of him. He was giving a talk on Scala Z in the area. And so I went to that talk and he showed off some really cool things about Scala Z. And I decided that, well, if there are people who don't like Scala Z, but I decided to sort of make that call for myself. I decided to go out and look for tutorials, look at some other talks, sort of play around with it myself. And the more I saw, the more I liked. And I think it sort of really appealed to it felt a lot more how I felt programming should be. So one really big issue I had, and I think this sort of stems back to just how I am as a person, was I was always really afraid that I would run like an extremely long graph processing job, maybe in Python or C++. And then it would run for like a day or two or, or a really long time. And then I at the end, I would realize, oh, there's like a small bug in my code. And there was no easy way for me to sort of look at the code and know that something was wrong. And when I got deeper and deeper into, into functional programming, it became a lot easier for me to sort of stare at a piece of code and say, all right, this probably does what I want it to do. And you sort of hear, like, if it compiles, it works. And so while I sort of don't agree with that in a language such as Scala, where you still need to sort of have some tests, it, it's definitely more true in a language in, say, like Cock or Idris or maybe Haskell. But it definitely gave me a lot more confidence in the code than I felt in Python and C++. And so the more I saw it, the more I liked it. And I just kept going deeper and deeper.
0: So if you jump into Scala Z to make the decision that because you want to make the decision about it for yourself, instead of just seeing both sides go back and forth with what they think is positive or what they think is negative, was that what helped make the transition to all these other things you said you would laugh at Jared about and poke fun about of (laughs) pattern matching and immutability and higher order functions and all the like? And was that the forcing function that drove you into using that? Or was there a time in between that you were starting to get more into... These ideas that you were originally laughing at and saying, oh, no, no, these things aren't usable, and finding how they are usable and what they benefit you.
1: Yeah. So I'm sort of the kind of person where if I hear enough people telling me not to do something like, there's no use looking at OCaml, just look at Haskell, or there's no use looking at Scala Z, just write Scala the way it was, quote, idiomatic way, that sort of almost prompts me to just want to look at it more and to just make the decision for myself. And I think for Scala Z, that, that worked out pretty well. At the time, it was purely an academic curiosity for me. I was like, why is this library so divisive? Like you'll see other libraries like JSON parsing libraries where people are sort of like, uh, it's a good library. Well, they'll say it's really good. But ScholarZ was sort of the first library where people were either like, no, it's a terrible library. Don't use it. Don't look at it. Or this is an extremely useful library. I couldn't imagine programming without it. So I decided to check it out and make the call myself.
0: Was the foundation being set there? Or was that something that you had to go ramp up a lot of these other concepts by picking up Z if you were going to look at ScholarZ?
1: So said was my first exposure to functional programming and is responsible for most of what I know today. So I did hit a lot of blocks, but I just kept going at it. And they had a really helpful IRC channel. They were always happy to answer any questions I had. And then I always had these small projects I worked on, like a lot of graph analysis projects that just random ideas I had. And I would try to use ScholarZ in those in my free time. And Jared helped me a lot as well. So I sort of just kept banging my head against it and asking for help. And eventually things would start clicking in my head, and then I would begin to sort of snowball reading papers, reading other books, and and other ideas would begin accumulating.
0: Okay. And refresh my memory, and probably for the listeners too, does Scala support some of the things like the union types and some types or product types out of the box? Or is that something that you start to fold in and get some of these more expressive type systems with Scala Z or an equivalent? Before you get to even bringing in things like functors, applicatives, and monads, and you have the higher order types, but just even some of the more basic types of saying, well, if I want to define a tree, and I know a tree is either a subtree or a leaf, then I know I can define that. Is that something that comes out of the box in Scala or some of these libraries before you have to dig into the Scala Z?
1: So Scala as a language will provide some types and product types, or I guess union types where they have, you can mark a trait or an abstract class as sealed which basically means that if a trader abstract class is marked as sealed, all its subclasses must be in the same file. And that allows the compiler to do certain kinds of analysis that you would expect with union types. Like when you pattern match on something of that type, it will make sure you pattern match exhaustively. So it has like the basic tools you would expect in a functional language. It has, when you declare a variable, you can declare it as val or var, which would be a immutable or immutable reference. The standard libraries has immutable lists, immutable sets. So like the very basic building blocks. But once you try to go, say, the pure functional programming route, where you begin to talk about monads and applicatives, and you want things like the state monad or Clisley or the IO monad, that stuff is not in the standard library. And so that's when you need to begin bringing in libraries like Z or Cats into your class path. And so a lot of the times what I'll hear is people will say standard library is great or it's okay. But to me, ScalaZ or CATS is sort of like an auxiliary to the standard library that I absolutely need when I program in Scala, especially when you do so in a pure functional way.
0: And as you build in and you hit some of these stumbling blocks on picking up ScalaZ, because you're like, I'm going to learn this. But if I haven't really been exposed to some of these concepts that are even in Scala before, and having to get deep into some of these ideas like functor, applicative, and monad, if I have no context even before of some of this pattern matching stuff or some types or union types, what were some of those stumbling blocks that you were hitting along the way as you were trying to get in and understand Scala Z and make that call for yourself?
1: I think one of the big stumbling blocks for me was forcing myself to not mutate things. So so what the definition of functional programming that I like is is functional programming is programming with functions, which is sort of like a tongue-in-cheek comment. And so I guess you could sort of revise it to see is programming with pure functions. So try to write a program without mutating anything in Scala. And from there, I was sort of eventually hit certain blocks like, oh, I want to generate a random number or I want to create a graph out of some random seed. I want to be able to randomly generate graphs or I want to do some sort of IO action or I want to compose like database actions. How do I do that without actually side effecting? And it took me a lot of asking questions at IRC, a lot of harassing Jared about all right I want my random number here but I now have like this this rand monad how do I get out of it and figuring out how to reconcile I guess imperative or or side effecting programming with how do you do things in functional ways such that you can still reason about it and keeping your code still pretty clean was something that took me a long while to figure out in part because Scala provides escape patches for you which can be both a good or a bad thing but eventually it yeah, it took me lots of practice, lots of asking people questions, lots of bothering Jared, bothering people on IRC for things to click.
0: And you go down this route, you start going down the rabbit hole. And you also mentioned cats and as compared to Scholar Z. What is some of the difference between cats and Scholar Z? Because I've heard some people prefer cats and some people prefer Scholar Z, but I don't know of a good rundown between the two as I'm not necessarily in the Scholar community. But someone looking on the outside. So for those on the outside, what's a good description and the difference of what Z gets you and what cats might get you?
1: So ScholarZed and cats occupy largely the same space in terms of what kind of technical problems they solve. And so there are people out there who are writing middleware libraries like an HTTP library or database library that actually have what amounts to a macro under the covers that can cross compile against either Z or cats because the class, the kind of tools that both libraries give are largely the same, right? You'll see the usual functor applicative monad, you'll see useful data types like state, Kleisli, sets. The difference largely is, is a social thing. So maybe I think three, four, or four years ago, ScholarZ was sort of like the de facto functional programming library. And everyone sort of built their libraries around Scholar and it was really nice. There were certain social issues that sort of caused the split between ScholarZ and Cats, and it was a bit messy. If listeners are curious, if you Google around for Scala and Cats, there's just a couple of articles out there. I don't want to get too much into it since it was sort of a messy thing. But in terms of technical tools that they give you, they occupy pretty much the exact same space.
0: Okay, so they're just two different views of the same thing. And it's not like you get one kind of feature set with Scala Z versus a different set of feature set versus Cats. And they have different fundamental views and abilities as a library goes. Not community, but what one can give you, the other one can pretty much give you the exact same thing then?
1: More or less, yeah. So if you look at, for your listeners, if you go to Polcat's GitHub page, he has a project called Doobie. And what Dooby does is it gets cross-compiled against both ScholarZ and cats, and it basically has a little sort of C, like, macro directive that just swaps between import cats.monad versus import Monad,
0: And so you start going down this route, and you start becoming one of the people who think of... Scala as a light Haskell in that sense of that I can run on the JVM. It's got adoption. I can still use the JVM libraries, but I start to be able to reap the benefits that a Haskell or an ML would give me on the JVM. After that happens, there's a switch in there. What was the switch that made it click for you? And then what is the thing that helps keep you excited about doing this and saying, well, okay? ScalaZ is here, or CATS is here, whichever one you choose based off the community, but you've gone out and given a bunch of talks. What is it that really clicks for you about Scala now?
1: So for functional programming, the thing I like the most is it was the first time and continues to be sort of the few solutions I've seen where I can look at a subset of functional programming and understand what it does, either by just looking at it or by decomposing it into its partner. There's no global state I have to be aware about. There's no sort of control flow that I have to be aware about if this happens before that. It's all about just simplifying my expressions, right? I can take an arbitrary expression in a program, in a Haskell program, or in a program written with scholars that are cats, and then say, if I don't understand what it does, take these two parts. If I can understand those two parts, it's relatively easy to reconcile it back to what I was looking at originally. What keeps me excited about Scala and functional programming is there continues to be a lot of work in terms of furthering the language. So one of my favorite tools in sort of the functional programming toolbox is, is the applicative abstraction. And that didn't come out until fairly recently, I think within the last 10 years. And recently there's been a lot of research to do how do you manage effects, right? So the canonical way you will hear people talk about managing effects in Haskell is using the IO monad, But the IO monad is a relatively blunt tool in the sense that if you give me an IO data type, I don't know what it's doing behind the scenes, right? It could be doing anything. It could be dropping database rows, or it could be making a a network connection, or it could be printing something to the screen. And so there's been a lot of research into how do I make sort of fine-grained effect type classes for abstracting away effects, and how do I compose those in a certain way? And a lot of the talks that I try to give, I tend to attend scholar conferences more just because that's sort of the community I'm involved with the most. But I generally try to target my talks to be not Scala dependent and more about like if your language has an expressive enough type system, then these ideas and principles should apply to you as well. And so I think my last talk at Scala by the Bay last year was on higher kind of types and why you should care. And I gave some talks in the past about why you would want an expressive type system. And I'm giving a talk next month about why having a compiler that's expressive enough and allows you to sort of hook into it and do things with it is an important tool to have.
0: So what makes the expressive type system? Is this the categories or types like the functor, applicative, and monad that are easily extendable for the fact that if you've defined this quote-unquote interface, this contract, whatever you want to think of it as that says, if I've got this type here and this other thing is of that type, so I've got the IO monad or I have the state monad, or if I have a functor or an array is mappable, whatever that is, is that the expressive type system, or what makes, the, what makes the type system be expressive in your case, if you're talking about languages with an expressive type system?
1: So I think one of the first things I look at now when I hear a new language is, does it support higher kind of types? And that's because without higher kind of types, it's going to be either impossible or extremely difficult for you to encode abstractions I think are necessary in programming, like functor, executive, monad. So higher kind of types is the first thing I look for. Another thing I look for is some way of encoding type classes. So Scala has this implicit mechanism, which we sort of emulate type classes, but it has its own issues that maybe we can talk about later. Haskell has type classes. I think OCaml is getting his own version of implicits on a roadmap. So I think type classes are also very important, but there's also some, some caveats with people who do support type classes. Another thing is some types and union types. I guess in general, uh, you could call them algebraic data types. So being able to encode something like either or being able to encode something like a tuple type in your language. And so from there, You'll generally get stuff like pattern matching and exhaustive pattern matching, and it opens doors for a lot of the tools you would need to do to do functional programming. One thing that I don't really look for or might even put me off a little bit is having a class system for a language. So a lot of these object-oriented languages with classes, I don't know if I could give a convincing argument right now. I can only cite two sources that have been convincing to me. So the two sources for anyone who's curious would be, if you go to the type level blog right now, I think the latest post by Stephen Comple on, I think it's called, there are more types than classes or something similar to that, gives a pretty convincing argument about why, if you care about static reasoning of your program, what you want is types and not classes. And there's another, which is a paper by William Cook, I think, whose title is more or less on understanding abstraction and polymorphism, where he sort of goes through and and talks about various classes of polymorphism and how, say, subtype polymorphism contrasts with ad hoc polymorphism, which is the kind of polymorphism that type classes can do. But between higher kinded types and type classes or implicits, I think, I think you're pretty well off. Some types, product types, don't know if I would be missing anything. You can go further and go dependent types. Though I'm not sure if dependent, fully dependent type languages are ready for sort of industry use at this moment. But there's certainly something interesting to look at, especially languages like Idris.
0: And I'd like to take a step back just a minute because we have, I'm sure, people who are either just getting in or are coming from more dynamic languages. So can you give a brief overview of, as a refresher, of the difference between what higher kind of types are and type classes and where that distinction falls?
1: Sure. So higher kind of types I like to start at the function level. So in in a lot of languages like C or Java, you'll have this sort of separation between functions and values, where you have functions which take values and produce values, and you have values that sort of contain the stuff that you want to work with. And then we have this idea of higher order functions, which are functions that can take functions or produce functions themselves. This gives you a more expressive way of talking about things, right? So for instance, in C, you would have to write a for loop each time you want to transform a list. In a language like Scholar or Haskell, you have this map function, which takes in the function you want to apply to each argument, and then just goes and does the thing that you want. So you're now able to talk about things you otherwise would not be able to talk about. With higher of types, if you imagine in, say, Java, you have the separation between type constructors and proper types. So if you think about list or future by itself as a type constructor, contrast with a concrete type like int or string, you have lists which can take a type and produce a type. So the list takes in a type int and produces a type list of int. Uh, Higher of types allow you to define things like type constructors, which themselves take type constructors. And this allows you to talk about things like functor. So functor is itself abstracted over a type constructor. And the method defines its map, which is, say, for any choice of A and B. So these are parameterized types. I should step back a little bit. If the type constructor that you're abstracting over is called F, then for any choice of A and B, if I give you a function from A to B, you should be able to give me back a function from F of A to F of B. So that's the kind of, you need higher kind of types to be able to talk about those kind of abstractions. Type classes, on the other hand, allow you to achieve overloading, which allows you to achieve ad hoc polymorphism. So in a lot of object-oriented languages, you achieve polymorphism by sort of, defining a class or an interface with the methods that you want, and you'll have subclasses that, that implement those interfaces. And then your methods will take or inherit from, from that interface or trait and implement it. And then you can pass those subclasses into whatever functions expect the interface. Type classes are sort of like that, but they're defined outside of the data type. So today in Java, if I wrote a class called equal or eek that defines how to compare two instances of a particular type to determine whether or not they're equal, And I want to implement that for the standard library's list type. The standard library, when you declare that you implement a particular interface in Java, you need to, at class declaration time, say, this inherits from X, Y, and Z. But if I create an interface today, then I need to effectively, one solution would be to wrap the existing list type, and then say, this wrapper extends this equal type, which is sort of cumbersome. Type classes sort of allow you to define them separate from the class definition. Another really powerful thing that type classes will give you is They sort of have a type class resolution mechanism that allows you to say, if you can so consider defining an equality for a tuple type, right, where you have a product of some type A and some type B. To define the equal interface for a tuple type, that's dependent on whether or not you have an equal instance for the A type and an equal instance for the B type. And so you generally, in these languages, have some sort of mechanism in the background that's doing this sort of satisfiability solving for you behind the scenes, which is something that you wouldn't get in a traditional, I guess, object-oriented or class-based system.
0: And just one of the brief high-level overview, because I think people have heard these terms, have seen some examples, but if they're not dealing it in every day, it's which one of these things are which. It's, is the equivalent of a protocol enclosure the higher kind of type, or is that the type class? Which is it? If people are trying to come in and make these equations when they hear these things and remember which term is which if they're not dealing in this stuff every single day.
1: So for type classes down match more like closely with interfaces in say Java where you're trying to abstract over some set of operations. Higher kind of types, I don't know if I could think of an analog with something existing. There's just sort of a language feature that just gives you more power similar to how to similar to what higher order functions are. I don't know if they impact on anything. They just give you an additional way to abstract over things.
0: Those are kind of the in the OO world, they're kind of like the generics, right?
1: Yeah. Imagine generics if you could further abstract over other generic classes themselves.
0: Yeah. And so you get these expressive type systems. You get the fact that you get higher kind of types. You get the fact that you get type classes aside from having the ability to then come up with functor applicative monad as needed. And maybe that's what it all boils down to. When you're actually writing your code, what makes these things more expressive? I know people have talked about making impossible states impossible and the like. Where's the balance that makes the expressive type systems really click for you and something that if I'm going to look at a language, these are the things that I want?
1: So yeah, I think a lot of it will boil down to what is currently sort of de facto functional programming tool set, functor applicative monad, where you want these tools in order to write your programs. And so languages without expressive type systems like I'd say like Java or C++ maybe, they're able to still talk about higher kind of types. And I've seen people encode them in sort of interesting ways. But I think it begins to get, the language wasn't really meant for those kinds of abstractions. And at that point, you often will get a lot of syntactic noise or a lot of jumping through hoops to sort of achieve what you want, which sort of loses what I like most about functional programming, which is being able to look at a piece of code and not have to mentally execute it and instead just take expressions and simplify them and break them down. So I think that's where the balance is, where does your language give good support for functional programming? Does it give you the tools that you would need to encode the kind of abstractions you want to talk about? And while you could certainly sort of shoehorn Monad into, say, Python, it might not be the best idea because it might not be, quote, humanly tractable for you to want to maintain or keep track of such code, right? And, and expressive type systems. The type system is there to help you. instead of sort of keep you in line to make sure to yell at you if you do anything wrong, or if you try to side effect or do something that doesn't make sense. And your code should still end up looking like a piece of code that you can reason about as opposed to something that was sort of coerced into becoming this monadic monster.
0: So a lot of this is about being able to assemble the pieces together. If you're looking at functor applicative of a monad, per my understanding, again, as Bartaj Mulewski said on the episode that he was on, where it's about composition. It's about being able to assemble these pieces together nicely as opposed to just even some of the basic Scala types or Haskell types or the other types where you have some in product types that say, if I have this thing, I know it's closed over because I sealed this in Scala or it's just not extendable outside this other thing. So if I've got an akka, I can pattern match on, I know this is a supervisor or I know this is a worker process and I know there's not another type of process. So it becomes more about the composition than instead of knowing that you're finalized to a discrete set of type, you don't care what the types are as long as they have that behavior
1: then. Yeah, so that's a big thing. Composition is effectively what we were going for in functional programming, right? When your functions have side effects and if you don't have the tools necessary to control those things, it's much harder for you to take two arbitrary functions and compose them. Whereas in a functional program where we don't have side effects and functions are pure and referentially transparent, it's sort of just a matter of Due to shapes line up, but if they do, then I should be able to compose them in a relatively straightforward way.
0: I guess. And thinking about it now, when I'm asking that composition, and the higher kind of types give you more the generic types and structures that I believe it was Perlis was talking about. It's better to have one function that can operate on a hundred of those than ten and ten kind of thing. Where if I can have a functor or this other type class. I don't care if it's a person, I don't care if it's an airplane, I don't care if it's whatever other thing I've come up with in my domain, as long as it has this ability to support this behavior, and that behavior is support a map. I don't care what it is, it could be an array, it could be something else. That's the kind of stuff that you're looking for in these expressive type languages. That's what makes it expressive to you?
1: Yeah, so that's basically it. One of my favorite examples of this is in a Scholar Center library, we have this function called which to say the type signature out loud is given some list of A's, so maybe like a list of user IDs, and some function from A to future of B. So maybe for each user ID, you spawn off another future that creates its news feed or user profile or something. It'll give back a future of a list of B's. So thank- it effectively does like a scatter gather approach. And oftentimes I'll hear people come to me and, and say, all right, I want something like future.traverse, but instead of future, I want I want it for option, or I want it for either, or I want it for some IO type. And because a standard library doesn't give you this applicative abstraction, you would either have to implement it once for every single data type, which would be kind of annoying in that you wouldn't be able to abstract over it, or you wouldn't need to bring in a library like Scalazette or Catch or write the abstraction yourself in order to once and for all write Traverse for any data type that implements applicative. And you can't write applicative without higher kind of types, which means if your language can't Do a clean encoding of higher kind of types. If you want to do something like traverse, which is very common in pure functional programming, you're more or less out of luck.
0: And I'm wondering, because you also mentioned when we were setting up the call that you want to talk about embedded DSLs. So part of me was trying to get an understanding of what the expressive type system means to you and how you view it. Because I want to actually transition to taking some of this expressivity and writing DSLs and embedding the DSLs in your language and being able to have something that would be expressive to your domain
1: that you're modeling? Yeah, so I think this is one of the really nice things about programming in a functional language. You'll often see people write languages and compilers in functional languages. So I think Facebook has some stuff in OCaml and Haskell. And in general, you'll see a lot of Haskell DSLs embedded or external. So I read something a couple days ago about how functional languages are all about sort of expressions and evaluation, and so that lends itself to being a very good way of talking about other languages, so encoding other embedded languages in it. And in a separate place, I read that it was maybe a tongue-in-shee comment about how functional languages are just domain-specific languages for writing other domain-specific languages. And having a good type system to express these things is is important, and very useful when you talk about domain specific languages. So, for instance, when we talk about applicative and monad, you can think about applicative as building up this sort of AST, but no branch or no node of the AST depends on any other branch, which allows you to effectively run things in parallel or do other kinds of static analysis on this. So, for instance, there was a popular project at Facebook Open Source called Haxel, where it allowed users to define external data sources that they wanted to reach out to. And whenever they composed these different mini bits of Hacksawar programs or embedded programs, behind the scenes, it was able to just transparently do batching for them, right? They would be able to just walk the AST and because there's no sort of data dependency in the AST. It could just batch together calls to similar APIs. And, and so they would just, for one given API, they would just submit one batch call. And for different APIs, they would be able to run those in parallel because there's no data dependency. And for things like Monad, you can view those as programs which do have a data dependency. And so you have the tools already available to you in a language, not only for abstracting away side effects, but to just write about DSLs. And in fact, you can frame these controlling side effects like IO monad as DSLs, right? I.O. you can sort of think of as an expression that when run eventually, so it's sort of a mini program that describes what side effects you want to run, but is itself pure. And when you go to compile and run the program, there's some external interpreter that's saying, okay. I have the information, I need to run these side effects, let's go ahead and run them. But when you look at the program as a whole, and when you look at different fragments of the program, they're still pure and they're still DSLs. And so a lot of the research I was talking about before about controlling side effects and controlling fine grained side effects has led into a lot of trends in writing mini DSLs. So you'll have one DSL purely for talking about how to access the database. You'll have one DSL purely for talking about how to Maybe you call some web API and you have another DSL for rendering a page. And then it's all about how do I compose these DSLs together? What kind of behaviors do I want these DSLs to have? Do I want implicit batching? Do I want them to be applicative? Is there a data dependency between them? Stuff like that.
0: And as you go out and you start selling these things, the Scholar community has gotten relatively large, but it is still semi, I don't want to say fractured, but there are some different camps in it is my understanding how are you finding the reception when you're it, going out and giving talks and talking to other people who are using Scala that start to get into these advanced topics like you were just describing with building these DSLs and saying, well, here's the monads, here's the applicatives, here's the functors, here's all these different things And people's reception if they're just using Scala as a better Java or kind of a Ruby-like language that's running on the JVM versus the Haskell stuff? What does that look like when you go out and make these sales? Are people's eyes glossing over and like you just lost me at the beginning? Or are people excited? What's the migration looking like for the Scala adoption when you're going with the more pure Scala?
1: So I generally try to root a lot of my talks and blog posts in why people should care. And oftentimes a lot of them are motivated by questions I receive frequently, either from my colleagues or from chat rooms. So for instance, for my higher kind of types talk, I try to ground it. And it was because a lot of my colleagues would ask, well, now that Java has higher order functions, why should we care about Scala? And one of the killer features for Scala was higher kind of types. So I began to think, why should they care about higher kind of types? And so conveniently, a lot of people ask me whether or not they program pure functionally is this traverse method, right? Do you want to be able to, for each element in the list, run some asynchronous Java and then gather the results? Or maybe they want to given some list of user input validate each piece of input. And if at least one of them fails, then just fail the whole thing. Otherwise, give me the list of all the results. And so different things like that. And so oftentimes my ask would be, you're not going to be able to do it in a standard library. But if you check out scholars that are cats, then they have the tools there to achieve what you want. For my talk that's coming up, when I'm talking about express types and compilers, I try to, one of the motivations I intend on bringing up is this idea of heterogeneous lists, right? Oftentimes you'll hear people saying, In Python, my list can contain integers and strings and doubles. And when I go index into a list, what I get out is an integer or a string or a double. Whereas in Scala, if I try to type list 1, hello, and 3.14, what I get is a list of any. And then when I index into that list, what I get back is any type, which is useless to me. And then you end up in a world of casting. So we had to cast from any to int, and sort of have to rely on you not screwing up as opposed to the compiler helping you out. And so from there, if you're able to encode something like a heterogeneous list, which is possible to do when you have an expressive enough type system and a compiler to help you, you can actually write out a list that has heterogeneously typed elements, and yet when you index into them, still get the appropriate type out. And I know there's a lot of, there's been a lot of talks about free monads, especially in the Scala community recently, and that really comes up. As a way of being able to swap out different interpretations of your program. So in a lot of these traditional object oriented languages, at the end, when you want to test that some specific thing is being done or some functionality of your system, you'll often resort to mocking where mocking is sort of, I get why people in those languages given those tools would like mocking, but it sort of seems shady in that you're, you're sort of going under the covers and using reflection or maybe even poking in at the bytecode to sort of undermine what the program originally was doing for the sake of testing. And I think there should be a way to test your programs without resorting to these kind of tools. And indeed, if you write your programs in terms of these DSLs or free monads, then you have a way of doing that simply by viewing your program in a different way and then swapping out interpreters. So generally, I try to ground, my talks will still be about like, maybe these really abstract things, but I will try to ground them and bring them back into reality by sort of, these are problems that I'm seeing a lot, and these are the tools. If you sort of came over to this side, we have these cool tools that will solve your problems without resorting to unnecessary amounts of code or unnecessary tools.
0: So do people come back and say, oh, I see that, now I'm really excited, and follow through, or do people say, hey, that sounds cool, but yeah, that's, that's too advanced. That's too much of what I want to get into to solve this problem right now, so I'm just going to deal with casting my any to whatever I think it should be at that point.
1: Yeah, so I generally will still get mixed responses. Generally, I think they're, I would like to think they're enthusiastic at least. And I know some people who have gone and like you'll hear a lot of experience reports in, especially in the scholar community about people beginning to migrate over to this free monad stuff. But I think one of the big difficulties is it's sort of hard if you're the only person on your team who's quote-unquote sold on functional programming to sort of go to your team the next day and be like, all right, let's bring in this, this library, scholars and are cats, and let's begin framing everything in terms of free monads and in terms of IO monads and state and applicatives when the rest of your team is sort of like, well, I'm not sold on this, and I don't know if I want to invest the time to learn about this. I got things to do. I have deadlines to meet. And so it becomes a bit trickier to sort of say, are you willing to trade off ramping up time with learning these things? And for me, I think it's definitely worth learning. It might be slow at first, but I think the productivity you gains in the long term vastly outstrip any sort of slowdown you would get with meeting a deadline. Of course, if your deadline's like next month, maybe you don't want to bring in like this whole free monad stuff immediately. So on a, on a related note, one of the big things that Type Level and Catch is trying to do is provide A lot of documentation around these that are providing type check documentation around these various otherwise abstract concepts that hopefully make it easier for people to go and learn these things on their own time. There's also a book that came out, I think, in the past couple years called Functional Programming in Scala by Runar Bjarnason, who you had on the podcast, I think, a couple weeks back, and Paul Chiusano, that gives a really good walkthrough. And in general, we're trying to provide lots of tools. We provide a chat room and like a list of projects that you might be interested in to help you along. But at the end of the day, you sort of need someone on the team or a couple people on the team or an organization that are ready to sit down and, and help people through these things.
0: And are you noticing if people are coming into these chat rooms and seeing some of this documentation and you're keeping an eye on it, are you feeling like the Scala community is shifting this way or is it just it's the slow trickle and you're gaining steam, but most of this stuff is still pretty niche, even if for people who've made it over into Scala, most people still treat the Scala as a better Java with some functional features?
1: I would like to think there's been a pretty good trend of people coming towards the functional side. I know we get a pretty diverse set of people in the Skitter channel asking questions about free monads and about various abstractions and just in general asking questions. So it seems like what we've set out to achieve, we're on a good track. I don't know how many companies are in production today writing pure functional programs at Scala. There's certain companies I, I know of who are doing that. I don't know if I should explicitly name them out if they don't want to be called out, but I know there's companies that are doing so with success.
0: And some of that is someone in the community, if you're going and attending conferences, either attending as an attendee or attending as a speaker, seeing some of those tracks and saying, oh yeah, this is picking up steam. A year ago or two years ago, we had three talks maybe on the whole concept of this, and now we're getting like half the sessions or more for people who come to the Type Level Summit or Scala by the Bay that are intrigued about this?
1: Yeah. So one big trend I've noticed in the past year is the free Monad has really, really, really taken off in the Scala community. And you'll see a lot of free talk, at least in conferences I've been to, like Scala by the Bay, Type Level Summit, Northeast Scala. You'll see a lot of talks on free and not just describing free as the abstract concept of free, but you'll, you'll have people come in and talk about we use free in production. This is what we learned. These are sort of some of the copy after three. This is how we're using free to do pure functional database programming. This is how we're using free to write a streaming library. This is how we're using free to do some HTTP stuff. And it's really cool to see how people from all these different domains are using this tool and, and really shows how free isn't just this sort of academic concept that, that you'll read about in papers. This is something that people are actually using to do real work, either in industry in their full-time jobs or just for sort of this hobby project they're doing at home.
0: And we're getting close to our time, and I'm not going to want to keep you too much to go over, but is there anything that we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up and at least mention?
1: I think we covered a fair bit. I guess uh, my sort of the message I would want to get out is just, even if you're not using a language in your day job, I would encourage people to check out Scala, check out Haskell, maybe even check out Idris, Agda, Koch, and sort of delve into give pure functional programming a try, sort of see what these type systems give you. One big thing I really try to push whenever I I try to get people into functional programming is don't just reading about it is one thing. Actually going and implementing a program in a pure functional way is another thing. And I think if you're able to find a project that either you have or you maintain or that you would like to write, try to write it without side effecting at all. And just with that simple statement, don't do it with any side effects. Don't, Don't use a print line. Don't mutate a variable. Do it in a pure functional way. And I think from there, you will just naturally be led to the tools that you would need to do so and the kinds of libraries and papers or techniques that you would want. And from there, I would hope you would begin to see why the people who are into functional programming are the way that they are. And it's not just sort of we're doing this for an academic interest, but in practice, this doesn't actually work or anything like that.
0: And is there anything you want to plug? You mentioned an upcoming appearance, speaking at a conference. Is there anything else that you want to let the audience know about? And we can give details to the conference as well. So if people are there, they can find you. But is there anything you want to make sure that the audience
1: knows about related to you? So I'll be giving a talk at Type Level Summit, New York, and that will be on March 23rd. That's going to be co-located with another conference called Northeast Scholar Symposium, which will be March 24th and 25th. So I'll be there as well. There's another upcoming type level conference in Europe and Copenhagen on June 3rd, and I believe their call for speakers is out now if you want to submit a talk. And I'll also be attending Scholar World, which will be in the UK, September 16th to 19th of this year. I think those are the conferences I'm scheduled for this year. Uh, I think that's it. If people want to follow me, I'm on Twitter, and maybe uh, it might be easier for us to put my Twitter handle on the on the show notes. But it's basically my first and last name stuck together if you're, if you're looking look into episode title. But yeah, I think that's it.
0: Okay. And we'll get the conference appearances in, the show notes, so people can find you, talk to you, find out more if they're going to be at any of those conferences as well. We'll get your Twitter handle in. Is there any other place? You mentioned you do some blogging. Where are the other places for people to find you online besides just Twitter?
1: I do a lot of blogging on the Type Level blog. So if you go to typelevel.org, so that's sort of the organization that I participate in. That's where the type level summit comes from. That's where a lot of the cats projects and a bunch of other pure functional libraries are under. And they also run a blog there. So I'll, I'll blog a bit about that. And there's also a lot of good blog posts, just really good quality blog posts there. So be sure to check out even the older blog posts, if, especially if you, if you're a Scala developer, be sure to check those out to sort of get deep into the corner cases and the interesting parts of Scala. And maybe even if you're not a Scala developer, there's some language, more or less language agnostic blog posts there as well. So type level would be a good place to check out. I would also encourage people to check out the ScholarZ project. So right now the current version of ScalaZed would be ScholarZ seven. They're working on a new version, ScholarZ eight, which has a new encoding of type classes in Scholar, which is pretty interesting to look at. So that might be worth checking out as well. Other than that, that's pretty much where I am. The Gitter channel for the type level projects, which will be linked and should be linked on the type level website, is also a good place to find me.
0: And we'll get those included in the show notes as well. And I'll see if I can't find a specific link to just your post on the type of a blog as well and and get the type of a blog. And if I can find post by author for you, I'll get that included too. So people can go check out your stuff specifically. Sounds good. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you for giving your time to join me today It was a pleasure talking with you and getting a good rundown and refresher of some of the stuff about the Scala community that I don't necessarily get to dig into every day. And, content to forget in between episodes of someone coming on and talking about Scala in the concept of trying to cover a bunch of different languages. So thanks for taking your time and giving me a refresher on what's going on in the Scala world at UC.
1: Thank you for having me, Proctor. It's been fun.
0: Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.